0: Hey, Linda. Hey, Wendy. Really excited to be joining you and our listeners for this conversation in our podcast, Being the Change. Me too. It's our opportunity to
1: have conversations with a variety of guests around topics that inspire us to
0: be the change we want to see in the world. In fact, this first season, very timely, we're going to be talking about this question, what the heck is going on in education? Well said, my friend, and really um, an appropriate
1: conversation to be having right now with everything that's been confronting educators, so I'm excited to explore that a little bit further. We are a social worker and a
0: counselor coming to you from the district mental health team in Pasco County Schools in Florida. Sounds like school's in session, Linda. <laughs> yes, it is, Wendy. You know, we have been going through so much over the past couple of years. I think one of the hardest things with the pandemic is the lack of predictability, the feeling of security, the feeling of a rhythm to things. And I think in our last episode, Dr. Tuntia really kind of put that into perspective, some of the, some of the factors that were actually exacerbating that dynamic. But if I do remember correctly, Wendy, I think Dr. Tuntia, who is a faculty member with USF in the Department of Sociology, I believe she left us perhaps with a glimmer of hope. Yes, she did. Thank goodness, right? Yes,
1: yes, please. Right. So hopefully we're going to find out in this conversation how we might be able to leverage uh, our opportunities in our K-12 system to begin to heal any fractures in our families, in our communities, and move forward with a, a collective commitment to progress.
0: I think that's, uh, I feel optimistic, and I know there's a couple things we're talking about here. We're talking about polarization in our communities, and we're also talking about the pandemic on top of that. So let's put on our seatbelts, Wendy, and get ready for this conversation with Dr. Tuntia. That sounds great, Linda.
1: Welcome back, Dr. Tuntia. Um, We're both looking forward to continuing our conversation um, and pick up where we left off with discussing how schools are a microcosm of our communities and the perfect place uh, to create opportunities for healing.
0: So last time in our conversation, you were talking about technology and how that was very uh, polarizing for us. And so if you wanna jump right back into that um, in relation to our schools.
2: One of the things that is interesting about schools, uh, as technology isolates people, schools is really one of the only areas where people go to without, uh, unless it's a specific schools, but even there, they don't select who they are with. So, they are exposed to a wide range of people. And that's the most wonderful thing, because that's a platform where you can really teach kids that they're different people. They might feel different. They might think different. They might have completely uh, alternative uh, life experiences and styles of life and spending time and interests and hobbies and coming from different families. And I think uh, that is really crucially important to
0: bring people back. So I think that's a great point. And you talk about the richness of diversity. That really brings a lot to, to our experience of schools and of life and of community. Last time in our last conversation, we talked about how things are so polarized. And so in that polarization, when you're trying to have conversation in the diversity that is that are our school communities how is that going to play out? Because people are speaking their truth, which might be very, very different than somebody else's. We cannot be right about every single thing we think. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I
2: think it's really healthy to have that uh, discussion and to, to have the ability. And I think uh, the educators are in a perfect position to model that tolerance and foster the dialogue uh, among different groups, among different kids, with different views, and uh, to model compromise and the importance of compromise in the society, And as we have to in the educational system to find that compromise in the group. So, uh, by bringing people together in the classrooms, and everyone is different, just realizing that it's it's great to have people who don't think that I do. Yeah, yeah. you
1: don't
2: yeah. want to live in the world that it's all one color.
1: Right. It's interesting because I, I I think what you're talking about is sort of the next stage of what we want to be able to talk about, which is what is the path to healing, right? So we understand sort of maybe how we got here, and now it's how do we get to a place of healing connection. And you've said already several times, uh, the human species, our path to healing and coping is through connection to each other. And those opportunities that you're talking about that come up naturally in a diverse culture like a K-12 system, I'm wondering if it's just going to take time for those conversations to play out in a a mindful, respectful way. How do we support our teachers in, in in facilitating those conversations, allowing them to happen? I think sometimes there is an inclination to shut those conversations down because they're a little scary. They're not sure how they're going to go, and they don't know how to support two divergent Views from 15, 16-year-old kids who feel passionately about it and you don't know what they're going to say next. Are they going to say something horrible? Are they going to say something polite or respectful? What are your thoughts about that? How do we support our teachers to to allow their kids to have those conversations?
2: I think one of the things is to emphasize before any conversation starts the importance of thinking about others. And uh, we're talking about one of the positive uh, outcomes of the pandemic, one of the things that was verbalized in our society uh, at at the beginning is just thinking about others. If you were going out there and you're sick, you're exposing others. You have to think about uh, the vulnerable people. So I think the orientation of thinking about the group is really a positive thing because we we need to consider other people's needs around us. And that's a positive thing that uh, hopefully will come out of the pandemic, that maybe we will still remember that after, after, after the VAC, uh, and uh, still continue to practice that. Because before, it was not really verbalized as much, because people were uh, really raised to think about that being self-sufficient and functioning, and that's the most important thing, uh, just to be on, on your own feet, always. Uh, and I think, uh, to start thinking about yourself as a part of their community is a really helpful uh, but also uh, I think educators as well uh, need to have tolerance uh, because a lot of times uh, as an educator I think modeling the idea that if a student disagrees with me that's okay as long as it's it's a, a position that is informed if, it's, if, if it comes from not learning the material, not understanding what we just studied, that's a different matter. But if it's something that comes from, okay, we both read the same thing, you, you have different conclusion, you came from different perspective, that's okay. We, we're gonna have a dialogue. We, we can bring our alternative perspectives in discussion, and uh, that's critical, really, for the society that uh, it has to govern itself
0: as a, as a democracy. I, I love your, your point about educators being tolerant. And it's challenging, isn't it? That especially for pe- educators or people too. And sometimes when you're under a lot of chronic stress or you're, you're exhausted or you be, are being pulled in so many directions, if you don't have anything in your gas tank, it's hard to give and to be flexible I think the way that we're wired neurologically is if we are at our stress limit and somebody's asking for more, there may be a a reaction or a desire to control the outcome, to put it into a box so I can feel like I can breathe. So to have that flexibility, to take different perspectives, to make adjustments as an educator, we have to take care of ourselves to be able to do that.
2: And I think this is why it's so important to uh, address the burnout factor, Mm -hmm. and the burnout is not something that uh, people expect to have, it just what happens it becomes the outcome of the situation, Uh, and it's really a result of the increasing pressure of the inability to relieve this pressure through normal ways when people don't have, uh, for instance, when they have negative emotions from stress but they don't have as many abilities uh, to have positive emotions to counteract that, to renew, to rest. So the less rest, the less life balance uh, is maintained, the more burnout happens. And we, we've seen that as a huge problem in the healthcare system in the past, even before the pandemic, because the pressures were so high, the level of responsibility is high, the uh, work-life balance was not always there. We know the doctors often work really long hour, hours and the educational system is really intense there, the high-pressure education. But what we also need to recognize is that high pressure has really entered all the different professions now and even kids' lives. This is one of the things that, to me, is really concerning, just to see to what extent kids work so much more, sleep so much less. And uh, it really creates this kind of, like you were saying, a perfect storm also in their lives Mm -hmm. of that burnout. Because when people are under sustained stress, not only has health consequences, but it also uh, makes them over, over time, they lose interest because it's not possible to live under sustained stress. So the burnout happens from that also uh, difference between the expectations and the reality. And I think uh, also for educators is the same thing. So I think a lot of people uh, feel stress and burnout because at first, Many uh, main educators thought, okay, we're going to transition, <laughs> it will become better, or it's just a temporary thing. And when it became a lot longer, and the transition uh, happened, but the years still the workload did not uh, become easier. Mm-hmm. I think that really uh, became part of the reasons that the burnout continued. And again, when uh, it's kind of it has a cumulative factor uh, as uh, people... In, in the families, their family members also experience similar stressors and at workplace and kids and it's all kind of mirrors each other and uh, becomes a lot more uh, of a factor. In
0: do you see, as we're talking about the internet and the silos of information and how this has further polarized us, do you see down the road a solution to
2: that? I think uh, we all have to play the role. Again, we we, uh, remain adamant that we're the only one that are correct. (laughs) 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 They will not be helpful. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, again, people have their views. And uh, a lot of times we see in our society just people are starting vilifying certain groups, and they feel, okay, I know the correct way. I know my view is based on science, and the other people, then they don't base their view on science. And what they don't realize, and maybe they're basing their view on science that is a different type of science that they happen to see, because, uh, again, their information throughout the pandemic was so... Uh, complex and changing. It's a situation that we never dealt with as as a human society, so uh, science didn't have all the answers either. And it was changing all the time because as more information was coming in there, more studies were done. A lot of times we had different uh, advice, even from their healthcare organizations and authorities. And uh, it's really not helpful to just uh, to define uh, this and that group as a group that is uh, mistaken. And it comes from sometimes maybe as, as a society, we didn't have the ability to respond in the best possible way. Because we didn't know how to respond. Nobody gave us a manual and said, <laughs> okay, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. Uh, we saw that there... Uh, advice was changed over time uh, in many different situations, many different points. So uh, we need to be aware of that and just more accepting of people and understanding that they are not necessarily coming from the lack of information. They're coming from just the different types of information that we're exposed to. And uh, have more dialogue uh, with them. Because we'll find people does not work. because, number one, it doesn't solve anything, because, again, the problem does not come from people. It's not any kind of group. And even if we have a situation we, uh, for instance, the, one of the divisions in our society is who's vaccinated, who's not, we also have to remember the pandemic is not about one country. It's, mm-hmm. it's global. Yeah. So, uh, there are many, many people around the world who are not vaccinated. So, that's also a factor. We have to think about not just as a country uh, uh, really responding to this pandemic, but globally. Mm -hmm. Because that's a factor. uh, We need to understand that. And I think by doing that, by uh, treating everyone in a humane, uh, accepting and understanding way, it gives more avenues of reaching out to them and have different opportunities of uh, changing people views if uh, if they feel validated and accepted because uh, People are not at fault for thinking a different way They just learned something or saw something that gave them that idea. So uh, We need to as a society also have um, a very uh, Good understanding that a views of a person is not the same as the person, that we need to stop combining the two, yeah. that uh, thinking something and having a specific view does not uh, discount the value and the dignity of the human being. People are entitled to have different views. We cannot uh, have a society with the single-minded We mm-hmm. would be in a dictatorship. I think it's really important to divide that and not to have uh, that identity uh, uh, kind of negative identity connotation because uh, it comes from not understanding how somebody can have a different view. And when we have understanding that how it can just naturally happen to anyone, it could be us (laughs) thinking a different way. Mm -hmm. If we just saw different information and I saw people just throughout life, not even during the pandemic, but in different uh, situations of politics that were happening, uh, they would start reading different things, and they would be completely converted to a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And so the more we see that, we we need to recognize that uh, thinking a specific way is not uh, a condemnation of the person, that identity of a person is separate from the views. It's kind of like in, in uh, really pedagogical approaches, you you never want to uh, give the idea that you are uh, criticizing, for
1: instance, the child, the, the, their character. You
2: criticize the behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love this discussion and I love this idea of, you know, what's going to get us where we need to go. I I wonder, you know how that's actually going to look in our system, and and can we do it, you know, and how much of a commitment it's going to take collectively. Like you said that before, you can't just, like, individually tackle this stuff. It has to be a collective commitment to manage, you know,
0: what's happening in our society. And I heard Dr. Chuntia say it's the power of the educator. The educator has this group of children that is really a cross-section of our society what an opportunity to create connection Mm -hmm.
2: precisely and uh, that's the really important thing just to to make sure that everyone is accepted that everyone's humanity is confirmed and when people feel validated, they relax more. Honestly,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> the truth. When they feel the, under uh, the attack, yes.
2: they they get a lot more polarized and a lot more angry about that because they feel that they're not accepted. Yeah. And I think uh, the society uh, has to have the level of tolerance to keep understanding that that's not how our political system can function. Mm-hmm. We, we cannot uh, have a society of like-minded people. It does not exist. Mm-hmm. And so uh, their tolerance and compromise are essential in any kind of uh, ability to run and govern because this is one of the things actually that is negative in addition that is happening is that with uh, kids having more time spent at work and doing homework and doing this adult-led activities, like sports and other things, they're not interacting in groups naturally as much as the previous generations were. And this is where the ability to compromise really stopped. Because uh, if you go out there and the neighborhood kids are playing and you want to play a different game than others, uh, your choice is either to compromise and play what other people want to play or just to go and be on your own and nobody wants to be on, your, on their own. So they have, they learn to adjust their expectations to take into account other people's views and uh, develop rules as a group. And I think the more uh, we emphasize and give kids the opportunity to have that social interaction is important.
1: So I think what I hear you saying is that um, we need to have opportunities uh, in our K-12 system for students to develop flexibility in conversations, adapt to different points of views, and um, high schools in particular are a great place for that to happen. And here in Pasco, that really fits with our mission, which is to ensure that our students are college, career, and life ready. So when I think about what comes next for our students and preparing them for for careers and for life, we really do want them to have that ability as they enter the workforce. Whenever they are
2: uh, in the workforce, they will have to work in organizations, they will have to work in groups, they will have to find a way of fitting in that uh, workplace in a positive way. So I think uh, more time, I'm a big out of, a bit of that, too, to give kids more time to even develop the hobbies, to develop other interests, to just to have more time on their hands, to uh, be uh, just a human being. Mm-hmm. Go to a pediatrician and they they give uh, every year this the most important steps that the, the list that the mm-hmm. parents need to do to ensure the well-being of their kids, and they change because the kids. Uh, approach, and uh, the kids' stage, uh, development stages are uh, changing, and they have different needs at different uh, ages, but there is one thing that always stays in there, and that's the most simple and uh, kind of obvious thing that is even surprising that the pediatricians actually have to emphasize that, and it says, uh, please make sure that you eat at least one meal a day as a family together. Mm-hmm. And this is the key. And why is that? Because those social interactions are key. And people have social connections. Counteracts that isolation, just sitting in in the room, on the computer, on the phone, Uh, it allows and uh, ensures that kids have interactions with others on an everyday basis. And research actually shows that uh, eating uh, meals together as a family has enormous impact on mental health, prevention of uh, different behavioral problems and other uh, issues so it's a simple thing but again it's a social in nature because kids have an ability to talk about something parents have an ability to see if their kids are not feeling well emotionally it gives that incredible uh, venue of discussion of different things and hearing other opinions because uh, parents can have as a different generation. They can have
0: different views of things, and that also allows maybe a little bit more, more of that. that the importance of family dinner is like it, or any family meal is does show that in the research. And I, I love that you brought that up. The idea that a dinner as a family, um, playing a musical instrument, playing a game with friends. Being outside, going for a walk, or riding your bike, all of these things are actually good for brain development. So, if we think we're adding more work on top of things for brain development, we've got to make them extra, extra great up there. Like, that's actually deterring because it's adding a level, level of stress. But bringing all these other activities in is actually he- helping make those neural connections, so they're going to be better in the classroom.
2: Absolutely, and there is enormous amount of research about music. Yes. How just doing something completely yes. uh, independent, uh, music, uh, allows people to do better in math,
1: mm-hmm, yes.
2: and we don't think about that connection, but mm-hmm. it is there. Mm-hmm. And all sorts of things that come up uh, come out of this interaction. The more we have it, even vocabulary. When we're listening to adults, they're using a lot more advanced vocabulary in every family because kids, when they're growing up, especially younger ages, and it's, it's good to have the practice and do more reading.
0: Wow, so the, the over-scheduling in and of itself is like creating uh, or taking away the spaces for that sort of exploration.
2: Kids need to have some free time to pursue those things. It's really fundamental mm-hmm. uh, to ensure their mental health everyone has to rest. The kids need to have uh, work-life balance too. Yeah. And we don't think about that because yeah. they are kids they are not working, <laughs> but they are working. Mm. And as we, as we know, for instance, they spend nowadays uh, six or seven, eight hours in school and they come home and they have hours and hours of homework. That's more than any adult works in this country. So, when you're having a child that works more than an adult, we have to consider the the consequences of that. Uh, Their work-life balance is not preserved there, and kids have more uh, learning to do outside of of school, too. Uh, Partly, it's cultural. The United States, generally, is a very fast-paced society. Uh, where people feel that they need to be always busy, always functioning, always doing something. Uh, and I think uh, the negative thing is that uh, they grow up and sometimes they, they feel that they have to be always busy. They've been socialized and just never have time for themselves. And uh, I've heard students uh, actually talk about the fact that they feel guilty when they have a little bit of time and they yes. will not do anything. Like for instance when they have a break, they feel that something is wrong mm-hmm. because they're so used yeah. to always working uh, that we don't have that work-life balance and I think it really affects how the future generations when they enter the workforce whether they will actually draw those boundaries and they'll say, okay, I have a free time Mm -hmm. and this is my time. (laughs) I have to have some time to decompress, to renew, to revitalize, to uh, attend to my other needs, my social needs. And we we hear that all the time, that people do not feel that they have uh, time for themselves. So they prioritize.
1: Well that's that's so true and I I think as adults and as so if we're looking at even the school system that kind of behavior sometimes is rewarded right so if you're that person who's doing that there's sometimes this messaging to you that that makes you a good worker or a good employee and then that's modeled for the student you see the teacher eating you know her lunch at the at her desk or something and so We're sort of reinforcing that idea that a a good employee, a successful person, you know, uh, somebody who is committed to their profession, this is what they look like. And that maybe is sending the wrong message to our children about what it means to be successful, what it means to be rewarded for the kind of behaviors that you engage in when it comes to your like academics or how you function as a student. So I think we have a responsibility, too, as the adults, to model that that is not the value that is placed, is, is not on work yourself, you know, the entire time from beginning to end, and if you're working nonstop that whole time, that means you're a good employee, that there should be opportunities to sit and talk and reflect and have lunch and eat and go to the bathroom, you know, the
0: basics, as you said. Reminds me of Dr. Siegel's work in the healthy mind platter. Yeah. If you're interested in that, Google Dr. Siegel, healthy mind platter, <laughs> and you can see the range of things that are actually good for our, our brain health.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're good, they're, it's creating that work life balance, that time in when we're reflecting, that physical time, the connecting time, the focus time. Those things are all good for how our brain is functioning. But it's the diversity of those things, which is really
1: that healthy mind platter and what it includes is everything that you've been talking yes. about just sort of naturally in this conversation. You have dropped in every piece of that as this is what a healthy society really should, would look like if we were able to do all of these things in natural ways. Um, and that's all what's been built in through that research. Um, as much as we need a healthy, balanced nutritional diet, we need a healthy, balanced mental health. But it's all interconnected, mm-hmm. and
2: it cannot be approached as an afterthought, mm-hmm. because the, just like you said earlier, we cannot have a situation when human value is just measured by the amount of work they, they do. <laughs> Uh, it's it's all of it mm-hmm. and being creative and being developing as a human being and I think it's connected in a way that the last time people have, the more they prioritize a uh, the task and disregard their own needs, the less opportunities they have to exercise them and I think uh, for instance, a healthy diet comes from having time to cook something. <laughs> even, even if it's just 12 extra minutes that mm-hmm. some studies show that it takes to prepare uh, a homemade meal compared mm-hmm. to the frozen meal, it, it's, it's still 12 minutes. So when we define that we can't spend 12 minutes for ourselves, for our own most basic needs to nurture our health, and uh, we're not uh, setting as a priority. That's not a really uh, a positive and healthy uh, dynamic that we're setting ourselves for. And plus, again, when there's a cooking is happening at home, the kids get involved. They're mm-hmm. learning about something. They're learning about nutrition. They ended up helping out. They're learning about the responsibilities. They actually have a chance to interact with their families. And it's all uh, creates this more uh, balanced involvement in life, that it's not just uh, life is work, 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 and then you sleep for <laughs> whatever <laughs> little amount you yeah. have. <laughs> we really basically define now that even sleep is negotiable.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: it's, not, it's not a given that uh, kids need to sleep a certain amount of time, just like ourselves sometimes do that and disregard our needs of sleep it's unfortunate then it, it should not be happening because it gives the wrong message for the kids and then they internalize those uh, patterns uh, of their behavior for the rest of their lives and they continue to sacrifice their sleep later down the road to accomplish things or even just to uh, just to read a book or whatever they didn't have a time because they they need to have that time to decompress, or uh, or play a game, or whatever they use for for that. So it has to be a kind of a unified approach. But the basic uh, direction that should be uh, emphasized is that we are not uh, capable of functioning long term uh, by disregarding our basic needs. Mm-hmm. So, and education in particular, it's not. A short-term affair. <laughs> so kids are there for a long time and now they, the majority of jobs require a college degree, the increasing numbers of jobs require that, so it's it's a long-term project. So they have to be uh, not just functioning well now, in a year from now, three years from now, they, they have to look at the whole range of those years and they have to maintain the balance that will allow them to to go on and uh, have that interest and enthusiasm of what they're doing, and after that still uh, enter the workforce with the fresh interest and enthusiasm for their job, for whatever
1: they selected to apply themselves in. Beautifully said. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, this A wonderful conversation. I mean, I love the direction that everything has gone in. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? I think I just want to say that
2: uh, whenever there is a challenge, there is a, in particular the health challenge that we're going through. There's always a tendency to see and focus on the negative. And there was a lot of difficult times that each of us went through, and as a society too. And we're still having that challenge continue. But I think uh, the important thing just to, uh, to try to focus on those positive things that we can take from that experience to learn. Uh, about the lessons we acquired from that, whether we wanted it or not. (laughs) As I was saying, we we got a lot more tech-savvy, but we also learned the limitations of that and how sometimes it makes you more tired to teach a class online Mm -hmm. compared to teaching a class in real life, so we learned that it's not the same thing, Mm -hmm. so we, we have some learning uh, that we acquired from that, that we need to make sure that we maintain just the importance of community, the importance of uh, taking care of the vulnerable members of our society, and just be attentive to each other. Just the importance of how uh, the slower pace of life that at the beginning of the pandemic happened by, <laughs> by choice, but by necessity, uh, really made people appreciate uh, how busy they are normally mm-hmm. and just that it's the first time in many years in some cases they were able to actually sit down and mm, do something with their family and talk to each other without running to the next errand and uh, I don't know make cookies with their mm-hmm. kids or things that they never had time to mm-hmm. and just to understand that this is also part of life that we should not sacrifice. We need to have that balance and trying to insist on that, and just to take those positive learning experiences, and to know that uh, we can heal as a society, and uh, we can only do it together. Mm-hmm. We cannot uh, meet challenges individually as effectively as a group. So we have to uh, counteract that threat as as a society, as a nation, as a local communities, our families, and just support each other. That's the only way, and that's the best way, because each of us then wins. Mm -hmm. Each of us uh, is supported and uh, made stronger by uh, the people who are around us.
1: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Tuntia, this has been a, a genuine pleasure to talk with you. Um, I love your thoughts and your feedback. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy our conversation as well. They're
2: really important mm-hmm. topics and important work that you do. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Wendy, what a conversation. Um two parts, uh, two different conversations with Dr. Tuntia talking about what the heck is going on with education.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed this, um, both of these parts. I enjoyed this conversation that we had with Dr. Tuntia. Um, I really felt like a lot of what she had to say was powerful, and I hope that comes across um, in the interview that we had with her and the way that, you know, we presented it.
0: Yeah, we kind of started with this idea that she was going to give us some hope about that, you know, we're not stuck here in this place of free-floating, kind of as we're coming out of this pandemic, hopefully. I'm going to knock on a little bit of wood there. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. So trying to figure out, like, what were her messages? I mean, what sticks with you?
1: I think one of the first things that stuck with me as we were kind of re-listening to the conversation was this idea of um, tolerance. You know, she talked about, at at the beginning, I think, of this episode, we were asking her what advice, you know, she might give to educators as students are coming back into school and having conversations about all of the things that are going on in our society, you know, in addition to COVID um, and beyond COVID. And she really, I think, eloquently talked about our need to have tolerance for diverse viewpoints and perspectives, to to um, demonstrate and model tolerance in our own conversations um, and respect and tolerance for our students as they're sharing maybe viewpoints and perspectives that are not aligned with ours. And, you know, I I feel like that sounds appropriate for a K-12 setting and
0: necessary, but also really challenging. That's what I was about to say. Did you read my mind? I read your mind. That is just so hard. I mean, it sounds nice, and it sounds like, of course you would do that. You know, really well-intentioned educators want to do that, want to support each student in their classroom. But the reality of how do you navigate those conversations is really tricky truly and it's it can be really uncomfortable um, yeah and I, I
1: think that's so I, I like that we were able to talk about that talk about the how uncomfortable it can be talk about the need for them to still happen despite the discomfort um, but I, th- I think there's still a lot of a room there to, to grow in our system.
0: The idea, though, that that we also talked about that was a regarding tolerance, that in order to be tolerant or flexible in the way that you're handling things, you have to be able to be taking care of yourself. And some of the things that she said I thought were, I I think, are challenging. She talked about work-life balance. Yeah, and
1: I I really liked how she talked about work-life balance, not just for the professional, but for the student.
0: Yeah, I really hadn't
1: thought about a work-life balance when it comes to children, you know. But she was even saying that some students right now, especially like high school students, are working. You know, I'm using air quotes that nobody can see. I see them. You see them. Thank you, (laughs) Um, Linda. They're working more hours of a day than adults if you look at their school day, their homework, if they're perhaps, if they have a job or they play sports.
0: I think that was a really important point, and it was something where she was saying that's not what they need for brain development, you know, that they actually need unstructured time and time doing different kinds of activities from music to interpersonal things to very unstructured where they're not doing anything, and they can just daydream and think think things through and imagine.
1: Yeah, and you, you don't really um, pause to think about how important that is for a child's development.
0: Yeah, and if they don't do it then, that what happens is they compromise their sleep. Right. Um, because the interpersonal part is so important. I do think, though, that when we're talking about the educator side of that, the burnout that Dr. Tuntia was talking about, that it's really challenging because she was talking about, like, taking breaks, taking care of yourself, and it almost feels like, because we love this with self-care, Right. You're so tired, you're so stretched, so why don't you just take care of yourself? Like, it can feel like one more thing to do. Yeah, and, and, you know,
1: she talked about that, also that time together. Yes. That we, when we were in the midst of the pandemic and we were locked down at home, that it was, we were forced into a pause and we were forced into this time spent together and a break from this fast-paced world that we sort of immediately returned to and now here we are and it's almost worse in some ways because we're dealing with more mental health Mm -hmm. and behavioral health issues from our students we're dealing with grief and loss perhaps from you know the pandemic and and we're we're trying to make up for lost time in the educational system in particular and so the pressures are are almost feel anyway harder and and worse than they were pre-pandemic
0: yeah like we're supposed to snap out of it okay we're back you know you can take your mask off um if you want and now it's just kind of like get get going um and you're you feel like something is r- still wrong yeah. And well, and the, there is no
1: time like she mentioned about, like, if there was ways to add more time into our schedules yeah. like for our, yeah. stu- our children and for ourselves. And we've actually had those conversations with staff in schools and they don't really feel like that's an option
0: time is not something whenever you ask people in education what do you want more of or it's always time time is the thing we don't feel like we have enough of so I think that's really really challenging and I think that It's one of the things that she emphasized um, is the things that we want to take away from this experience of the pandemic. She mentioned being tech savvy. (laughs) That is the truth. I've never Zoomed so many times in my life. Yeah. 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 So we have skills in a different arena. But then also this, this pause, like you said, this what we got out of that, that connection, that slowing down, that kind of assessing what's important in our lives and yet, at the same time, the challenge, I think, now is things are still on our plates. You know, there's more things in educator, on educators' plates, and there's more communication. There's more things going on. There, there still is change in what they're doing. And still there's this feeling of, like, but don't forget to rest.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's it's all the old pressures from, the pand- from pre-pandemic yes. are still there, and then some. And now you add on this extra layer of the outcome of the pandemic, and I don't even want to say
0: outcome because the pandemic's not it's really not over. It's not over. I knocked on the wood, though. Yeah,
1: you did knock on the wood, and, and I didn't, so I better. <laughs> Thank you. You know
0: what I'm super excited about, though? Our next conversation in our next episode. Yeah. Because we are going to also then kind of bridge this to what is going on, what has been going on in education, you know, over the last couple of decades, you know, that was already happening, what the shifts that were already moving in education before this pandemic?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the next logical step, because I do think that's sort of the rub. There's, there's the pandemic, there's things that we can do to heal from it, um, but some of those things that are healing tools still feel out of our reach because of things that were going on in education before the pandemic ever got here. Yeah. And have been exacerbated by the, the pandemic.
0: Super excited for that conversation Me with too. Todd Clough. Yeah, yeah Todd that'll Clough. Be fun. He, yeah,
1: that's, that is yes. fun. So I, I want to, as we kind of wrap up this, um, this episode, the one thing I do want to sort of take a quote from Dr. Tuntia. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things she said that just hit me at the time she said it and has continued to sort of resonate with me is she said she was talking about, like, how different we all are and different perspectives. And in that conversation, she said, we we do need to be able to validate the value of each human being. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, that concept really just strikes a chord with me. I don't know that we naturally do that, especially when, if I'm sitting across from somebody that's sharing a perspective that is so completely polar opposite of my perspective, it's difficult to see the value in that perspective.
0: That is, that's really deep, and you know, if you think about it, what she said, what she talked about happening when we do that, is that it bridges, it bridges the gap, and it brings down the tension. Yeah, and I, I To me,
1: that does seem to be our path forward, bridge the gap, bring down the tension, validate the value of every human being, because every human being is valuable.
0: And educators have a unique opportunity as we bring kids together on a daily basis to create those bridges. I love it. All right. uh, Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. So Wendy, there has been a little bit of a time lapse since we had this conversation with Dr. Tuntia and and now as we're wrapping up our editing process and in the meantime, things have been happening in our world. Just wanted to kind of take a minute to acknowledge that. As we introduced her, Dr. Tuntia is originally from Odessa. Odessa is on the Black Sea um, in Ukraine And so with the attack on Ukraine, we just want to take a moment to send our love and our well wishes for safety to Dr. Tuntia for her loved ones in Ukraine. We are thinking of you. This is Linda Hughes. This is Wendy Belfield. Sending you our gratitude for being the change that's needed in our world. And wishing you a healthy mind. And a happy
1: heart. Like and subscribe!